Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Yeah, and we have a shout out. <laughs> Amber's <laughs> thrilled to be here. I just, we have no, <laughs> there's no, there's no pricey on, I, this, on no, this script. And so no, I'm, something different. I'm flying blind. Yeah, well, we have a shout out to Zena. Thank you so much for joining us over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We appreciate the heck out of you um so this is a new month of themed content that we are embarking (laughs) upon listeners um june was or at least you know the calendar is skewed because wednesdays but june was the dirt at sea and now july we're going to the movies because it's hot and there's ac there yeah so get your popcorn get ready for some guy with a giant head to sit right in front of you and uh we will start things off so what we are going to be doing well I, amber why don't you tell the listeners what we're going to be doing because oh, I'm, okay. I'm not sure because i got it wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what we're doing for summer movie blockbuster month is we each have picked a couple movies that uh deal with archaeology and like specifically deal with a site or a culture or something archaeological that is real. So like, whereas with the Indiana Jones franchise, it's like stuff that's well, like, I guess the Ark of the Covenant. It's loosely but like, based like, on But it's real? not. Yeah. So like nobody excavating Petra in Jordan was going to find the like the the <laughs> the the. the, the uh, I keep wanting to say the crucible. That's not it. The the cup, the sippy cup, Jesus, the sippy cup. Um, yeah, yes. God. Yeah. Oh. Same. oh, I was really usually like we know what the other one doesn't know, but this is a. Uh, oh my god, the holy, holy grail. grail, holy grail, holy grail, holy grail. Oh. So uh, okay, so spoilers. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is not one of the Star movie blockbusters, not. but. So this for the next month, um, we are going to be talking about um, movies and we're going to be talking about the archaeology and the anthropology that is a part of the real story behind what we see at the movies. Um, yes. And so it's going to be a little little bit of movie, a lot of bit of archaeology and a little bit of did they get it right? And so Anna's. Indeed. Anna is uh, taking the the first the matinee here, um, <laughs> with the the first episode first of this feature. series, and um, and then I'm gonna be coming in hot next week with with another with another one. Yep, that's how series works. <laughs> okay, cool. so what what um, what what Anna? What what today? What today? Today's feature is the dig. Uh, the uh-huh. <laughs> movie starring... The thing that my mom thought this show was called for about two years. Yeah, I've met people who, who are like, I don't know them very well, and they sort of only loosely know what I do. And they're like, oh, yeah, The Dig, right? And I'm just like... Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, this film came out in 2021, starring Carrie Mulligan and Rafe Fiennes, among yes. others. Um, a Fiennes brother. Yeah, finds so, the elder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, quick synopsis first. Please, yeah, because I've not seen it. Yeah, I mean, eventually when you get around to it, I do recommend it. But it's based yeah. on a 2007 book of the same name by John Preston, who is the nephew of Margaret Preston, who participated in the actual dig. So he's related okay. to someone who was there. 
So. And who is a character in the story, too? That's my understanding, although it occurs to me that because there is a Margaret, although she's called Peggy in the movie. Um, As they often are. They often are. And so I'm not sure if this is the same person. Okay. But, um, they're very well may have been another Margaret. I might have gotten my Margaret's mixed. So it's 1939-ish. Okay. In Britain. War mm-hmm. with Germany is looming. Mm-hmm. And local working class self-taught archaeologist, although he calls himself an excavator, Basil Brown, with just the most charming West Country accent. Basil Brown um, has a real Hagrid accent. Uh, and he's hired by landowner Edith Pretty to excavate one of the mounds on her estate. So excavations actually started um, in 1937 on an adjacent mound. And they, they allude to this in the movie, but they don't really spend much time on it. Um the earlier excavation showed that that mound had been looted centuries ago and not much was found. Um, okay. So I'm going to quote here from cautionspoilers.com, <laughs> which, okay. because I'm talking about the movie and this, it's a movie review site. It's not a history site. Okay. So consider this. Is this where you get all your film reviews? Your film criticism comes from cautionspoilers.com? No, in fact, I had some notes of my own. I had some thoughts. But first, I'm going to share someone else's. Okay. (laughs) So, quote, In a film about time, the villain of the piece is time itself. The sense of urgency grows daily. Britain is preparing for war, and once hostilities are declared, all archaeological investigations will cease. Just as Sutton Ho's link with the past is uncovered, at a time when a country will often try to anchor itself to its glorious history, those glories might have to be reburied without proper investigation. And for some of the people involved, time is also running out. End quote. So, uh, I mean, the, one of the big threads that runs through the movie is that Edith Pretty is very sick. Um, oh. And so, yeah. So... This is, and here come my thoughts. <laughs> this okay. is, it's a real slow burn of a drama. It's a slow movie, but okay. a lot happens between characters. It's a lot uh, of character building. It's almost entirely, I mean, the, the story is about the people working on this dig, but it's, it's about these little moments of relationships between the characters. And it really. So it's, it's less of a sudden who and more of a sudden how. Yeah. So. There's a lot of, I mean, the entire movie is just sort of a, a, a increasing tension. Um, mm. The mo- It really does an, an excellent job, at least it did for me, of, of creating the kind of anticipatory dread of people who know that terrible things are coming. But at the same time, for Basil Brown and Edith Pretty, there's a sense of wonder and excitement about the past. Um, Brown, in particular, um, is completely, at least this character, the character, we'll get into the real guy, but... He's completely besotted with history and, and he becomes so absorbed in the work, even after um, he gets buried by a trench collapse and almost dies. So, oh, wow. yeah, so that, that's a dramatic moment. Um, yeah. And so the rest of the movie is a lot of these beautiful little moments between characters um, and sort of a sense of impending doom uh, framed by depictions of the excavation that I thought were really great. Like the, the design of the set was pretty incredible in that they had to recreate archaeology, which is a process that takes material away. So putting it back to make it look the way it did, because there's lots of photographs of the dig itself. So creating that, that gradually changes, putting the material back in reverse to make an audience believe that it's being newly uncovered. And that it's a really, they did a fantastic job, especially since, and as we'll get to this, one the, the big thing at, at Sutton Hoo, at the, Burial is a ship, but the ship is no longer there. All the organic material is gone. So it's the imprint of a ship and they oh, recreate wow. it's like, it's just this exquisite detail. Um, so oh. yeah, I, I thought the set was, incre- I mean, a lot of it also is just like the British countryside, which is very pleasant, but, um, quick note here from an interview on Forbes.com with Jamie Jeffers, host of the extremely long-running, very popular British history podcast. Um, I want to note that Jeffers is a lawyer by training, not a historian or archaeologist, but he's a sort of very passionate 
amateur historian, and he spent 10 years doing extensive research on British history for the podcast. So he's really, he he was approached by someone at Forbes to sort of comment on this. Hmm. So he says, quote, Sitting down to watch The Dig, I had a list of things that I wanted to see in the film. I wanted references to the rain, which hampered the excavation efforts, the shadow of war, the rescue nature of The Dig, because war was coming, the problem of rabbits, which can tunnel and, and destroy sites like that, um, how class issues affected The Dig, and many other things. And in the first 20 minutes, the film ticked most of the boxes I was looking for. Okay, so pause. Okay. Sounds like there's a butt coming. And indeed there was. So, quote, The biggest issues, Jeffers said, surrounded the character of Edith Pretty's cousin and excavation photographer, Rory, a wholly fictional creation who not only introduced unnecessary issues with several of the real-life people, but also squeezed two pioneers out of their place in the spotlight. Jeffers says, quote, We know who the Sutton Ho photographers were. Their names were Mercy Lack and Barbara Wagstaff. Yes, two women, and it's believed that they produced the first color photographs of an archaeological excavation in England, and thus they made history with their work. These two groundbreaking women were replaced by the fictional honka honka burning love, Rory. Jeffers' words, not mine. End quote. So Rory's also, um, he's also sort of crowbarred into this movie to create a love triangle between real-life archaeologist Stuart Piggott and his wife Peggy, played by Peggy Pilly James. Peggy Piggott, Margaret Piggott. Yeah. Um, in the movie, this is portrayed as a relationship between the young, fresh out of grad school Peggy and the older, closeted gay man, Stuart. And Jeffers says, quote, Peggy was not an inexperienced, sweet young thing who was chosen because she was small and petite, which is a, a point that's raised in the movie. She was an experienced archaeologist who had worked on previous digs and who was a postgrad archaeologist and published scholar. And as for her husband, who was only two years older, I am aware of no evidence that Stuart was homosexual. End quote. Um, he also, Jeffers also calls this fictional love triangle thing slanderous, but I think it's sort of more that he, I don't know, he, he seems very invested. Thoughts? Comments? Yeah, so was the book written as nonfiction? I don't the think these characters, like, I don't think that character's in the book. I think that character was created for the movie. Which, like, still, my question still stands. Like, was the book no, written it's a as novel. nonfiction? It's a novel. So it's a novel, and mm -hmm. then it's a novel that's, like, adapted for the screen. But it and is so, based like, on, you know, it's, like, based on true events. But, but, but fictionalized. Which it sounds like the people who lose in this situation are the, like, woman characters. Yeah. Um, which is an issue. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, apart from that, um... Apart know, from the misogyny. Yeah. Um, I don't care. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I'm going to leave the rest of the plot unspoiled. Although, you know, you sort of know what happens because they found it's a thing. It's only cautioned for yeah. spoilers. Not it's true. <laughs> and so I'm going to get to the archaeology part. But to set the stage for that, I do want to talk a little bit about the real Basil Brown, who, okay. as it turns out, didn't receive any credit for the Sutton Ho work until 1985, when his name was finally added to the exhibit materials at the British Museum, where the hoard was donated uh, by Edith Pretty and where it's still on display today. So once once it was realized how important this site was, which is, you know, to British history, which is very other archaeologists, like actual academic archaeologists, came and took over. Um, Basil Brown mm. still worked on the site, but he was... Well, well, we'll get to him. Let's let's talk about him. So Basil Brown was born in 1888, and though he had limited access to formal education, he taught himself several languages and studied astronomy, geography, and geology. My so, dude. Yeah, real autodidact. While working on the Sutton Ho site, Mr. Brown cycled 35 miles each way between there and his home every week. So he'd stay at the estate and then go home on weekends. Um, and much, of, not much of the movie, but a reasonable amount of the movie is just Rafe Fiennes on a bicycle. Commuting. Yeah. After the war, he resumed his employment with the museum, um, the Ipswich Museum, where he had been working prior to the, the dig until he retired in 1961 at the age of 73. But even though he retired, he continued archaeological excavations until he had a heart attack in 1965. And then he relaxed a little bit and then he died in 1977. Wow. So, yeah, loved archaeology. 
After the war ended in 1945, the Sutton Ho artifacts were removed from storage. So they had been basically tucked away and covered with sandbags, as many of the things were in the British Museum, to make sure they weren't destroyed by by bombs. Um, So a team led by Rupert Bruce Mitford from the British Museum's Department of British and Medieval Antiquities determined the nature of the artifacts and helped to reconstruct and replicate the scepter and helmet, which we will get to. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there are, there will be some <laughs> photographic aids for you, Amber, ah, coming up. Great. So, uh, Good. so the site Sutton Ho, I've seen it written as H O H, H O U, and H O I. So I don't know. And H O O. Sutton Ho dates back to around 650 to 675 CE. Okay. When the Anglo-Saxons were really popping off. It wasn't England yet. England was not solidified into a single kingdom. This is something that happened sort of during this period. It started to happen. And so if you really care about British history, which I know you don't, but a lot of people do, <laughs> this is like a key point in British history. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. And it's it, fe- it figures into the dig because, um, and we'll, I'll talk more about this, but in wartime... People tend mm. to cling to national identity. Yeah. And so this really helped add something to the British national identity. Um, and it also it also really kind of um, created a paradigm shift in, in the understanding of what happened in, in post-Roman Britain. So we'll get there. So this was a time. So the seventh century CE when it turns out uh, stuff was going on and the Dark Ages, so that the post-Roman period were actually no such thing. Yeah, uh, only dark to me. Well, that I mean, that is exactly why they're called Dark Ages, because yeah, because I not a lot of them. yes, because <laughs> Amber doesn't know about them, and also because there's comparatively not a lot of stuff like written down and you know stuff that we know. We know a lot about the Romans. We know a lot about the like sort of after the Norman conquest. We know a lot there, but there's... When was that? What's that? 1066, baby. Battle of Hastings. 1066. So the Norman, they came from Normandy. Mm, They're French. And the... Okay. So, okay. Who... Who Angles? Who Saxons? Same, same? I I will get to that. Yeah. Okay. So so Anglo comes from Angli, which is the name that these people called themselves, or at least the Romans called them. The okay. people who who made the things that we're about to talk about, um, okay. and so, and this comes through in Anglia, like East Anglia. The the region is, that... is still called East Anglia. Yeah. Okay. Historically, the Anglo-Saxon uh-huh. period denotes the period in Britain between about 450 and 1066 CE, after the initial settlement by this sort of cultural group, the Anglo-Saxons, and up until the Norman conquest. And the French. So. 450 CE so the when like the Roman Empire truly fell apart yeah really kind of lost hold of of Britain when it kind of gave up on the outer territories yep yeah okay but it sort of reflects who's in charge so like up until 450 ish most things were administrated by Roman sort of outposts but then after that as far as like history capital H history is concerned definitely okay yeah. And then and then um, after that point, there are all these sort of local tribes that move in and I will I will list them for you later that move in or that uh, sort of self-determine. Some are there and and self-determine and some come from elsewhere and also settle in the area. There's a lot like of for like a power vacuum yeah. or because of like stuff going down. Well, because these were all groups that were interacting anyway. There was trade uh and there was, you know, these groups were aware of each other. And and that'll come into play later because um, stylistically, some of the the artifacts that we're going to talk about have influences from these other groups. But and and, and it's clear that there was trade happening. Um, And so it's not it's just an area where there are a lot of smaller individual polities that at one time or another have more or less power. Potentially last question. Yeah, probably not. But for now, I'll let you go to the next paragraph. Okay. Um, Had the Christian conquest arrived? It's about to. It's It's a coven. 
around around the time that we're talking Sorry. about, around the time of this okay. burial that we're going to talk about. So this burial, not. 450 not 450. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. In the seventh century is when so Christianity sort of gains a foothold. So Christianity gets there. Okay. So it's happening there the I mean, same time that the Islamic, mm. well, so the spread of Islam and then the Islamic conquest, like when there's like actually like an army behind like the, the Caliph. So yeah, kind so of all, both of these factors are start of, sort of like starting the the two boulders that kind of lumber downhill towards the Crusades. Okay. They're like concurrent boulders yeah. and then they smash into each other. That's, well, one kind of yeah goes they, a little further to smash. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. Sorry for trying to like push us east <laughs> where I know something. Um, okay. I am. Well, you'll know more after this. You have my attention. <laughs> Good. I, it's I intend <laughs> to hold your attention. It's been 23 minutes and, and I'm, capture, I'm in now. I'm going to capture your interest as well. Mm. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. So the term Anglo-Saxon, to answer a question from like 20 minutes ago, is popularly used for the language that was spoken and written by the Anglo-Saxons in England and southeastern Scotland from at least the mid-5th century CE until the mid-12th century CE. Um, it in scholarly use, so it's equivalent to Old English. Oh. So the thing that came before Chaucer's Middle English is heavily sort of norse slash germanic influenced i think if you were to hear old english spoken it would sound quite german but the sutton ho or who or what burial site is believed to be the grave of an anglo-saxon ruler who died in the early 7th century a ruler a ruler a king so just like a political ruler not yeah. necessarily like a a spiritual no other kind of no, I think he was just Nothing a holder of power. On? Although I don't know. I, I really don't know much about um, the sort of more ritualistic, spiritual parts of things. You don't know there. about the, the, the spiritual lives of the Anglo-Saxons? I don't, but I'm sure people out there know a Somebody lot. Somebody does. Someone really cares about it. It's not me. So location. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Southeast England. So East Anglia is the region. A little okay. bit inland from the North Sea, but along the bank of a tidal estuary of the River Deben. So strategically, this was great territory. Access to the coast, anything further inland along the various tributaries of that river. So it was like primo location. Much of the... <laughs> I'm trying to like sell you a, <laughs> a burial hoard. Yeah, you're just like trying to sell me a timeshare. <laughs> 
Uh, so much of the information that I'm going to share about the Sutton Who Horde comes from Sue Brunning, who is the curator of early medieval European collections at the British Museum. Um, I will have links in the show notes. She's done several quite fun videos on objects from the Horde that are in the museum collections. And with that, there are some nice informational pages on the museum site. So you can you can browse that if you you crave more Sutton Who. So from the website, quote, so Brunning highlights the effort and manpower that would have been necessary to position and bury the ship. So spoiler for all of the dig, uh, the thing that is buried, as I said before, is a ship. So it's this massive mound that enclosed a full ship and an individual was inside the ship. And then a lot of stuff was with the individual. And then it was mounded over with earth. So like a real ship? A real ship that like so like well I, I guess we would don't know because there's if, no ship left to know like to say that like it was it would to, have been that it the been, same like, as a water. yeah it would have been the same as a seaworthy ship of that time what I don't know is if it was used or it was like custom built for this the curator here seems to suggest that it would have at least started on the river Deben because she says it would have involved like making this burial mound would have involved dragging the ship uphill from the river Deben digging yeah. a large trench and then positioning the boat there and then cutting trees to craft the chamber. So there's a, there's sort of a, there's a picture below Amber on the script. If you that. can see it. So there's like a tent shaped sort of triangular like structure. It's a courtroom drawing. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's very much like a courtroom drawing. Um, so there's this triangular kind of tent shaped structure yeah. that wouldn't have been on a ship. Like that's people yeah. would have sat there to row it, but it's like a little A-frame. Mm-hmm chamber on a little tiny house yeah what looks like a boat like a big old canoe with yeah little 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 bits that stick up yeah or if you want to picture sort of like a viking ship with the very upright prow and stern there prow and stern that's Mm -hmm. what i meant Mm -hmm. sticky sticky uppy uppy bit yeah a landlocked person um so of like it makes sense that even if it weren't if it even if it were only made for the purpose of being easier to transport on the water yeah you probably made it somewhere else yeah and probably where they make boats which is probably on the water and so rather than just like you know dragging it it, so rather than being like a uh werner hartzog movie I thought you were going to reference the uh, Hatshepsut ex- uh, expeditions to Punt, where they brought like... No, I was going to reference a Werner Herzog mm. movie. Silly me. That's, that's, Silly that's me. further no. up in the list of mm-hmm. things I ever think about. Mm-hmm. That there Are there examples uh, preserved elsewhere, like excavated scents that would tell us like, of like preserved boats, like pr- preserved yeah. materials to tell us like what whether they were uh both like maritime or just so that's Harian vessels or <laughs> that's or the what? thing as far as i know um the most kind of comparable sites um are almost all all the ones i can think of are are scandinavian seem to be a lot more boat burials in scandinavian are they history they are not so th- this okay. is they are some of the polities that would have interacted with the Anglo-Saxons, but ship burials, as far as we know, like as far as current evidence tells us were rare at the time for Anglo-Saxons. Probably that means, I mean, barring something else going on, probably that means that they were reserved for the most important people in society. Um, So it's likely that this was probably a huge funeral, like a big ceremony, big deal interesting conclusion that's the thing it's like are these really rare because we just don't find them or are they yeah, rare because they like, were we, rare. i mean we didn't find this one oh, <laughs> we no. didn't find this boat we just found the stuff that was in the boat like well the boat was like, there even if i mean the wood of the, the we, we have found the, the signatures we have the signatures of the, the boat, of but boat. we don't have yeah. the boat like were there other things that like are there are there other are there other signatures of boats that are just missed and also like Maybe it's really important, but maybe it was just like maybe like that guy a, just a really loved. Thing. Maybe, maybe he loved just his like boat. a weird guy. Yeah, we don't know. I love I love the idea of like a the archaeological, archaeological record just being like full of like total weirdos. It is. Oh, just like people of course just it like is doing like freak stuff, and and us being like ah yes ah this yes is obviously like the pinnacle of society when everyone's been like this, this guy 
<laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that guy, uh, yeah. we don't we don't know who, for certain who, if anyone, was buried in the the Sutton Hoo burial. We only have we have signatures of no person bones. and signatures of boat. Correct. So, so we don't know if there really was a person in there, but if there was a person, the best <laughs> candidate, <laughs> this was built for someone, whether or not that someone was in the boat <laughs> right. is the question. But so the most pop, uh, popular candidate, the, the most like, um, promising. Thank you. The one that people think is probably true, if anything, is Raidwald or Raidwald, mm-hmm. which sounds like the, uh young adult books populated by mice and badgers and stuff by Brian Jakes, but it's not. His name was Raedwald, uh, who ruled the kingdom of East Anglia. So it was a kingdom around this time in the early seventh century. He may have held power over neighboring kingdoms too, which may have earned him a good send off. That's a a quote from, um, in a boat. So, uh, Sue, Sue Brenning. Yep. Unfortunately, uh, we'll probably pronounced. So, (laughs) My lungs. So unfortunately, uh, we'll probably never know the true identity of the grave's inhabitant. When it was unearthed in 1939, any bodily remains were claimed by the acidic local soil. There's just like... You feel great about that, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) It's, um, you know, it's an area where it's it's not exactly peat boggy, but it's very peat bog adjacent. It's a really acidic soil. uh, To leave only a human-shaped gap among the treasures within. So this led to a lot of speculation <clears throat> and, and again, people who really care about it over whether the Sutton Hoo ship burial was actually a cenotaph, an empty tomb or a monument erected in honor of a person whose remains are elsewhere. The thing that is interesting here is that since this is a period when Christianity was just sort of taking hold, um, the question of whether this burial would have been um, sort of a nod to local uh, traditions like local anglo-saxon traditions and then maybe mm-hmm. he had a christian burial elsewhere mm-hmm. or yeah i don't know but that was part mm-hmm. of the speculation in one of the articles i read okay. i was just like maybe that's why um going back you know mm-hmm. two thousand years <laughs> i know about something happening in this mm-hmm. corner of the world um like the the sorts of um like domestic burial, like secondary burials of, of like, like of ancestors and stuff that you, that we uh, see in like, like the Hall bronze Hall. age. Yeah. Well, not even like, not like, again, like freak stuff. Freaks. Um, <laughs> no, but like not even sort of like the, the mummified stuff that you see in the bronze age and that, but mm-hmm. just sort of those, those kinds of um, traditions that involve um, oh, secondary the, burial. Yeah, maybe. Um, and, is that kind of has has that been supplanted by other traditions? Are these completely different people at this point? Like, is it? Is it I don't think they're community? the same people, but okay. I don't I don't know enough about this period in this place to okay. have a good answer for that. So it isn't like we're building a cenotaph because he's in like his grandkids like basement threshold. <laughs> yeah, like it's not. That's not what's being no, to suggested. my knowledge. No. Okay. No. What I read hmm. was. He may not have been in this boat because he was buried somewhere consecrated. Um, and then this was a tribute to his prestige. So this is like the, the Redwald Memorial boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like There's like a little plaque on it. So you can like sit on the boat and like look at the ducks. Ah. <laughs> so <laughs> recent analysis detected phosphate in the soil where the if there was a body where it would have been. Um, and that's an indicator that a body once lay at rest there. However, that said, other organic material, other animal tissue could have left mm-hmm. that same phosphate signature. So so there's evidence in other similar burials elsewhere that animal meat was also included with grave goods. Okay. It is interesting that the space where those phosphates are is roughly human shaped. You know, it's like okay. elongated. Well, it could have been like three raccoons in a trench coat. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Despite that lack of human remains, it has still been possible to glean personal information about whoever the boat was for. So let's talk about the artifacts. Okay. There's a sword. It's a sword. It's a very, it's a, it's a cool sword. I mean, this is me talking, so. <laughs> sword nerd. 
how how cool is that sword? So cool. Um, I that, I mean, I will say the and and I'll get to this, but the the craftsmanship involved is is something special. Um, so the sword has wear patterns on the hilt, that's the handle, that show that the wielder was left-handed. Um, so it was used. It was used. It wasn't just a, a, wasn't a show set piece. Sword. Yeah. The blade is pretty much completely corroded, so whether there's wear on the blade, but oh, on the hilt, okay. it, you know, it shows that, that it so was it held. Wasn't like, it wasn't used to, like, f- fight aliens from the movie <laughs> Alien. No, <laughs> that was my first thought. It's Why? A, it like shot through something corrosive. It's summer blockbuster movie month, Anna. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see where you're getting that. No, it was just under the ground in acidic soil <laughs> for a long time, which if you were to shorten that amount of time into like one burst would be, yes, the equivalent of chopping through an alien from alien. Uh-huh. You got to give me some grace here because you went from saying that it was used to it was corroded. And I'm just like, what could occur by time? <laughs> time true okay so it had been used yes and so they were a lefty yeah they were probably a lefty um might have been useful in battle because most people are right hand just like in Mm. general majority of people are right-handed they're used to a right-handed opponent so the the sword and shield are in reversed places so might have given him an edge as it were hey uh the sword also has a garnet inlaid pommel do you know what the pommel is on a sword it's the very Um, that's an apple. Yeah. And then there's pommel de terre, which is a potato. <laughs> um, the pommel is the, the like counterweight thing at the end, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you have the, the, the hilt and then on the, uh, the other end, of, like the very end of it. Yeah. So the, the end I'm, of the handle. If, yeah. I've seen one episode of Forged in Fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's inlaid with garnets and it has a, a gold cloisonne design. So cloisonne is when there's incised, um, parts of let's say the hilt of the sword that's inlaid with gold and it's just a very intricate um metal wow working. yeah so even though it was a weapon that was used ostensibly it was highly valuable and and clearly made for someone important by someone who's very skilled yep. form and function mm. yep there were also some spears laid next to the body um and the sword had a richly decorated scabbard with a harness so the uh uh, sword belt. The scabbard is the sheath? Or Correct. The belt? The sheath no, the scabbard the is harness. the thing that the sword goes in and then the harness buckles the sword onto you. The scabbard. Yeah. Um, and so all of this stuff, like the the actual sort of trappings, the sword and the some of the buckle stuff that we're going to talk about and all that, seems to have been made by the same person. It's all kind of a, a, a cohesive design, as it were. Okay. Yeah. It's an outfit. It's a nuke. Um, the burial chamber itself the tent so this whole out this whole this whole look was served like in the burial Mm -hmm. and then there was phosphate yeah i mean it's like a pretty good indicator that there was probably a person because there was a person three raccoons in holding a sword (laughs) yep Mm -hmm. yeah okay 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 this is this is yeah okay Okay. So the burial chamber, so that little A-frame in the center of the boat, mm-hmm. was laden with military equipment, so, you know, spears, etc., textiles, and treasure, so more on the treasure in a moment, mm. of the very highest quality. Oh. Yeah, I know. Um, unlike fabric and wood, the metal items survived in the soil pretty well, but there were some more delicate things preserved, including... I just had to include this note. A tiny ladybug who probably just wanted no part of any of this nonsense. Like a ladybug, a ladybug. from 650 CE-ish. Could it be dated? Uh, I don't know. I didn't it's look into the la- ladybug. I didn't. I think it might be too small a sample. It's little. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so those textiles, some of them did preserve. They included quantities of twill, possibly from cloaks, blankets, or hangings. And the remains of cloaks with some sort of characteristic long pile weaving. So, I don't know. Fluffy cloaks. There appear, wow. to, yeah, there appear to have also been more exotic colored hangings or spreads, including some possibly imported uh, that were woven in a stepped lozenge pattern using a Syrian technique. And so, suggesting long distance trade. Two other color pattern textiles near the head and foot of the body area very closely resemble Scandinavian work of the same period. So... 
There's so a link kind of there. like a world market, yep. boho chic kind yep. of. This is, that sounds a lot like my living room. It's very <laughs> you. Like this whole, all of this textile stuff is like multi, sort of multi-ethnic like textures. The Scandi, the Scandi design and also the sort of like the Western Asian. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. This is, I'm, I'm getting into this. Yeah. Hey, you know, some of it's interesting, right? I can make you like some of this. <laughs> hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com dot com slash shop and click on the link. Uh, so the treasure, mm-hmm. among other things, there was a nested set of 10 little silver bowls to the Good right of space. the body. Good for your mise en place. Um, <laughs> the shape and the decoration of those bowls show that they came from the Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean during the 6th wow. century. That's so far away. And yet. Below these were two silver spoons, also probably Byzantine, their handles inscribed in Greek. One inscription is messier than the other and may have been added later by someone who wasn't familiar with Greek. I feel like it's what, like, Make I've, a match. I, know, I know I've mentioned this, like, oh, yeah, your brown, plate. brown plate that I have. <laughs> We're going to have to, can you take a picture so we can put that on our socials so people can see <laughs> what you are talking about? And maybe someone could translate it. I don't, know. I don't if yeah. it can be translated. Like, I don't know. Tell me which way it goes up because yeah. it's like impossible to read. It says, <laughs> <laughs> so there okay yeah there was also a large decorated leather purse although the, only the clasp is preserved because it was metal the leather got eaten away containing 37 gold soil. coins yes 37 gold coins three blank coins and two small ingots this is really cool each coin came from a different mint in francia across the English Channel, and they provide key evidence for the date of the burial, which that's one of the reasons why we know it's early 7th century. But the fact that each coin is from a different mint is important. This was a deliberate collection, not just coins accumulated over a lifetime. So it's like maybe tribute or something, like one of the mints from each of these places sends something for the tomb. And so this has prompted various explanations, possibly like the Roman obelisk. They may have been left to pay oarsmen to the afterworld mm-hmm. because there's a total of 40 coins. There's supposed to be 40 oarsmen, um, even though three of the coins are blank. So I don't I don't I don't know about that one uh, could have been a funeral tribute or an expression of allegiance from those particular places with the mints. Cool, right? That is so cool. Yeah. That is so cool. So we get like a really, so we get a pretty clear sense of the date then. Because there are matching coins elsewhere that have also been dated. Right. But, but if you've got like, if you're doing like a couple dozen sites that sort of, you know, you got all that wiggle room of, of things and you kind of. Yeah, this is, this is some wiggle matching. matching. Yeah. If you have some, some matching data points. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. What? What? This is really so cool. in the area corresponding to the lower legs of the body, like from the knees the, down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were various drinking vessels, including a pair of drinking horns made from the horns of an aurochs, which is a big, scary cow. Big extinct cow. Yeah. But they were around until, you know, until now. Yeah, like the seventh century. Yeah. Not, not now, not now, now. Sorry. Sorry. I meant <laughs> okay. now when this burial happened. Sorry. Oh, I lost, goodness. I lost myself in the stream of time. Sorry. <laughs> that was a completely like <laughs> natural response. What? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, everyone. I meant <laughs> through past the, the Roman century period, CE. at least into the seventh century CE. Yeah. Okay. Huh. A large quantity of material, including metal objects and textiles, so what I mentioned before, were formed into two folded or packed heaps. Um, and this included the extremely rare survival of a long coat of ringmail made of alternate rows of welded and riveted iron links, two hanging bowls, 
leather shoes, a cushion stuffed with feathers, folded objects of leather, and a wooden platter. At one so side, hmm? you say that these things were folded or packed heaps, so like they could have been in a chest or something. Yeah, or in a box? or they like a they box of been, stuff. Yeah, maybe the box disintegrated, or because they were stacked claimed by the acidic soil, claimed. Uh, because they were stacked, maybe they survived better. I don't know. I don't know if there was something to contain them or if they were just piles. No. Um, at one side of the heaps lay an iron hammer axe. That's what it sounds like. One end is an axe blade and then the other side of it is a weighted hammer. You know. Ah, yeah. yes. Uh, with a long iron handle, which the article that I read called possibly a weapon. Like, I'm pro- sure. Probably. Anything can be possibly a weapon. I guess they're saying this could also have been a tool or maybe like a symbol of office. Like you'd probably listen to the guy uh, with the giant axe. Whoever's holding the, the hammer axe gets to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's an extreme example of a talking stick. So on top of these packed heaps was a fluted silver dish, probably made in Italy, with the relief image of a female head in late Roman style worked into the bowl. This contained, so that the larger bowl contained a series of small burwood cups, combs of antler, small metal knives, a small silver bowl, and various other small effects, possibly like a, a dop kit, like a little grooming oh, kit. Yeah. Um, including, not, not the grooming kit including, but the, this stuff included a bone gaming piece thought to be the king piece from a game set. Um, there are traces of bone above where the head would have been that suggests that a gaming board might have been set out. We've talked about this. There are some Scandinavian burials where there's a gaming board above, like above the head of the, the interred individual, like showing that they are a military strategist. We talked about it with the um, quote unquote sorcerer who was did I? a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did I bring up the seventh seal then? You probably did. <laughs> but just thinking about like, playing a game against death yeah exactly um yeah so so similar time periods also have this in other places so interesting maybe maybe it was a game board i don't know it's just traces of bone but maybe the famous uh sorry maybe the most famous artifact apart from the ship itself which isn't actually there um there are like the metal fixtures of the boat like the the like little rivets that held the planks of the boat together those survived but um the the wood did not um, but the the big find is the Sutton Ho helmet. And so scroll down, Amber, and you'll see a replica of the helmet produced by the Royal Armories for the British Museum. Why is there a replica produced for the British Museum by the Royal Armories? <laughs> because the original helmet is pretty fragile. That's so interesting that... I think they might show the real one too, but, but it has, the I just, metal like, has corroded. So many, there are, I can think of multiple things that I've seen in museums where the places where the things are from mm-hmm. that are replicas and the real thing is being shown at the British Museum mm. and the thing that's actually from Britain is like <laughs> a replica shown. That's what's like really sending me right now. Well, the thing that I don't know for sure is I, I think they may also have the real helmet, but. I think they did a bunch of scans and stuff to show details mm-hmm. of the design that you can't see on the on the metal from yeah. the actual site. And so the replica like the, shows all of that detail. Like the, the silly little mustache. Yeah, well, we'll get that to the mustache. In a, mustache. We will get to the mustache in a second because uh, you'll, you'll need to take another look at that. So this was thought to be a ceremonial helmet. Probably wasn't worn into battle. Look out for the mustache. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? But it was laid next to the head of the burial and it was wrapped in cloth. So the helmet is covered in complicated imagery, including fighting and dancing warriors and fierce creatures. The face mask forms a dragon whose wings make the eyebrows and the tail is the little mustache. So he's got like a little feathery kind of bird tail. It's a sort of a cross shaped dragon. The head goes up and over. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. The wings arch. Yeah. He's got a long neck. Right now what I'm seeing is like a goose. Well, yeah, if you imagine a goose in flight, but then that goose is a dragon. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that would work. I mean, any goose is a battle goose if you get too close to it. There are, so just as the sword had that garnet inlaid pommel, um, there are garnets lining the eyebrows on the helmet. Yeah. Only one of the eyebrows is, and so this is from the British Museum 
like webpage on the helmet. Only one is backed with gold foil reflectors. I don't know what that means. I looked at the photo for like 20 minutes trying to figure out what that meant. Gold foil reflectors. Maybe. I, I don't know. Um, but there is speculation that the, the reference to a single eye refers to the, the god Odin or Woden. Um, who shows up elsewhere in speculations about this material. So the helmet, um, like I said earlier, has the same designs and materials as the sword harness and buckles and coin purse clasp. And so as an ensemble, they would have definitely been majestic. It would have been quite an impressive look. And they are the work of a master goldsmith or, you know, the, the workshop of a master goldsmith. Like this stuff is... It's well crafted. It's beautifully crafted. Like whatever else you want to say about the design. (laughs) (laughs) Say what you will. Um, So the mask wasn't, wasn't like in alignment with the rest of the stuff to suggest that it was on the person's head. It was, it was wrapped in cloth placed next to it. Okay. So there's also a scepter that may not have been a scepter. And a lot of people have thoughts about it. (laughs) So from the, the report, the official presentation of the object from the the report by whoever analyzed it uh, i have abridged this because it was twice as long quote stone scepter or whetstone comprising a four-sided stone bar of hard fine-grained gray stone each end of the bar tapers to form a neck and ultimately terminates in a carved lobed knob roughly onion shaped and originally painted red the other end interpreted as the top, consists of eight copper alloy strips surmounted by an iron ring upon which is mounted a copper alloy stag. Immediately below each knob are four human masks carved in relief, one on each of the stone bar's four faces. Each mask is different. Three are clearly bearded, and five are either beardless or bearded with an exposed chin. They've got the Hulk Hogan. Yeah. All faces of the stone are extremely smooth and show very little trace of wear. So is it a scepter sort of symbol of office? Mm. If it's a whetstone, it wasn't used very much because if you're Mm -hmm. rubbing it against a sword a lot, it's going to show traces. Uh, Could have been a religious artifact. Could have been something completely different. I don't know. The suggestion that it was a whetstone because it's made out of the type of stone that's used in whetstones? Yes. Okay. So, like, even if it wasn't, if you really needed something to sharpen your sword, that would have worked. So, who was the guy? Who was the guy? I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. But there's, and and neither does anyone. Uh, There's no way to know for sure yet, as far as I know, at time of recording. (laughs) But the best candidate is an East Anglian king named Raedvald. Raedvald was one of the most powerful kings of this era from around 616 CE. He actually first became king in 605, but didn't really consolidate power across lots of different smaller kingdoms until 616. Uh, How do we know? Do we know this from Geoffrey of Monmouth? No, the other one. (laughs) The Venerable Bede. Acknowledge that I know something. (laughs) I know. Look at you. I'm so proud. Okay, so... He's also known as Saint Bede, the Venerable Bede, and Bede the Venerable. He was an English monk at the Monastery of St. Peter and its companion Monastery of St. Paul. Um, And he, yeah, he died in 735 CE. Oh. So he's much closer to the potential, you know, the the time of Raedwald. So so Raedwald kind of really got going in 616, ruled until his death around 624. Um, and then did the did it stay consolidated after him or did it nope fragment okay <laughs> for a okay. while okay so he like didn't invent written or something no but i mean what a perfect Arthur, segue right? there's a possibly extremely nationalistic note on the dark ages aka oh. post-roman britain from englishheritage.org.uk oh so, no yeah right so oh, no this sounds like but I want I want to read this because Great, it reflects yeah. like why people like why this yeah. matters. To no, people I so get much. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I know it's fine. It's just this is giving me like shades of Richard the Third Society. Yeah, very much. Just like these like stan organizations. Yes, but this is like we stan like we stan an extra extra capital E England. England. Okay. 
Yeah. So, quote, the six and a half centuries between the end of Roman rule and the Norman conquest are among the most important in English history. This long period is also one of the most challenging to understand, which is why it has traditionally been labeled the Dark Ages. Yet a kingdom of England emerged in these centuries and with it a new English identity and language. So like, yeah, so so the thing that would really become England. So and like specifically England, not Britain. Correct. So so the England that isn't Scotland or Wales. Correct. Yeah. And so. That again, perfect segue because Thanks. there was this England entity, uh-huh. but there were all of these other parties that were around in this area, like at the time that Raidwald would have been king, and then also after. And again, okay. there was like lots of fluctuations of who was in charge of what and how big territories were and who was doing what things. So we've got the Britons, so British, Romano British, and Breton. Uh, the inhabitants of Britain following the end of Roman rule, starting in the early 5th century. Okay. Is it Britain? Well, no, was I mean... Was it Britain? Britannia. It was Britannia. Uh, you got your Angles, you got your Saxons, and you got your Jutes. These are Germanic peoples who migrated from continental Europe and settled initially in the south and east of the island, starting around the 5th century. So that's why Old English sounds German. That's where the language so, comes from. So Angles, Saxons, not same, same, but no. language shared. Yes. That's why Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. is like what people who don't speak Old English call Old English. Correct. Is it a thing that fascists call Old English? I really don't know. That is wading into waters that I did not wish to uh, okay. wet myself with. <laughs> Okay, but then you got your Anglo-Saxons, okay. Okay. which is the collective term for these Germanic settlers, uh-huh. um, first coined in the late 8th century. And then the okay. it's sort of people were generally calling this group Anglo-Saxons after the 10th century. Okay, so people started um, migrating from the from continental Europe, mm-hmm. so far Western Asia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, started moving from... Um, Continental Europe, beginning in the 5th century CE, a little less than 400 years later, they were first described as, like, so the descendants of these these populations were first described in the late 8th century as Anglo-Saxons, and then it became, it caught on as a term in the 10th century CE? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, did it... Okay, so it was like in use bef- like a century before the Norman Conquest. Mm-hmm. And was it was the Norman Conquest Norman versus Saxon. Anglo-Saxon? Saxon. Saxon is is what you'll usually see is Norman, Norman versus and Saxon. Saxon. Yeah, there was there is an episode of Wishbone. Yep. about a book about this Ivanhoe? period. Was it? The, I think it was Ivanhoe. Was it Ivanhoe? <laughs> I think it was Ivanhoe. Robin Hood is also we during are this once period. again getting into the realm of things Amber knew about once specifically from Wishbone. Yeah. Well, Robin Hood also takes place during like right sort of after the Norman But that conquest. wasn't the war. That wasn't was it the Hundred Years War? Different. When is that? Later. War of the Roses. V- later. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Wishbone episodes. <laughs> I think it was Ivanhoe. Okay. <laughs> Ivanhoe. Yep. Ivanhoe's in all different area codes. (laughs) You got there before I could say you're scaring the Ivanhoe's. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we got Britons, Anglo-Saxons, Jutes, Vikings. Uh, We have talked about them. Yeah. So they they first really made And Viking job. Viking, not person. Viking is occupation. There's no Viking ethnogenesis. There is like... No, it's a vocation. It's a vacation. Okay. So there was a relationship between England and the Vikings in that the Vikings raided England a lot and also settled we there sometimes. Yeah, it's <laughs> an interaction. Uh, there are Danes. Hamlet. Yep. That's a great Dane. Morph. Uh, but Danes from Denmark, uh, 
are the Vikings who mounted a full-scale invasion in the 860s CE so, and then and then settled there. Yep. Also, they were Vikings who like unionized. Sure. But but they're still Vikings. They're Vikings. They're not they're, they, they it's not like ethnically, the Danish they are people. Danes. Ethnically it's, culturally it's not like, they are Danes. It's not like Hamlet is That's like, a later Dane. Yeah. But it, but it's it not later. But but it's it's not like the like some Danish leader is like get on over there and claim it for me. I don't like, think it, it, so. It, it I didn't think it was just like I don't think so. But there were really well established uh kings and and sort of um dynasties of of monarchies um in Denmark pretty early on I know very little about it so it it may have been at the behest of a king I don't know so but but it like so but it isn't like for what to me is a very easy comparison which is probably a lazy and incorrect comparison to talking about um like the Dutch East India Company who who that was job, but that became settler colonies. Well, that became colonies. Yeah. Yeah. It was just invading and then staying. Okay. Which arguably okay. is kind of like colonizing, but it's not like. It is sort of <laughs> exactly one type of it, but it isn't that, that sort of. Okay. So, okay. So that's what happened there. It isn't. It, it wasn't like, like from a mercantile like, perspective. Right. It wasn't, okay. It was so just it like, wasn't like these people with a job then claimed it and then the government came in behind them. No, and it was, was like, like now it is ours. No, it was like Denmark like, expanding its territory and saying like, we live here it now. Was that? So it was saying this is now Denmark? Well, it's saying or, this is this belongs to the Danes. Not that it was Denmark. But like instead of Anglo Angles living here, now Danes live here because we killed all the Angles. What's next? The English. So English, ah. <laughs> indeed, refers both to the Anglo-Saxons who refer to themselves as Angli and later to all settlers in England, including Danes. And then, <laughs> oh no. But th so a unified kingdom of England happened in the 10th century. So in the 900s, okay. it, there was a Saxon sort of Germanic England. That's when like Anglo-Saxon, that, that's the, that's the point at which Anglo-Saxon became like the common. Yeah. Did they say, I am Anglo-Saxon? I don't know. I wasn't there. But. <laughs> no, like, was it, is that an internal, like, is that an, an endonym? I actually don't, I don't know. I really don't know. Okay. Yeah. So that lasts for about 60 to 166 years. <laughs> no, I forgot that the 10th century is the 900s. No, 166 years. Okay. And then the Normans tromp on in and Frenchify things for a while. The Battle of Hastings, like the 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 Norman conquest is uh -huh. basically what's depicted on the bio tapestry. So Wait, we're uh Harold Interfectus Est, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um which he's not the guy with the arrow in his eye. That's not Harold. Um that that's a misunderstanding that's, of that's the tapestry. Odin. <laughs> so what yeah it's my helmet no so that so we've gone from <laughs> the early early uh <laughs> early anglo-saxon king burial the the ripples of that uh-huh affected sort of the formation of england itself as a nation and then when england was at war with germany the the sutton who the jutes the jutes yeah um Yes. When when the war was happening, the, this sort of rediscovery and sort of almost the re-anglicization of English history, which like that's yeah. very silly because all of these groups were here, but whatever, uh, was, was something to cling to, which is why this this find was so important for okay. for these people. It, that really comes through in the movie is, okay. is sort of what I want to end with is that. The movie does a really good job of sort of showing a little bit of the the desperation with which people are, are are trying to to finish this dig before you know before the war starts before things might be destroyed, but also it's it's the Englishness of of the site is is part of the plot. I enjoy the movie. Um, it's not the kind of movie I usually watch. Um, I don't 
you know, I typically like fast, stupid movies and not slow, uh, sort of feelings, feelingsy movies. But I, I, um, overall, I would, I would recommend it. This sounds like something I would watch. I think you would. I, I do think you would enjoy it whenever you get I around like, to it. I do like slow character studies. It's that. It sure is. And just I like, like Ray Fines. It's just the tone of the movie is also really, I don't know, maybe it's sort of a misplaced anglophilic nostalgia that I have, but like, oh, the tone of the movie is very sort of comforting. I don't know. Like it's a very muted movie, like aesthetically. Mm. It's very sepia. <laughs> ah, <laughs> there's like a slight sepia tone over everything, even though it's not filmed that way. Well, um, did you learn thank things? Thank you. I learned so many things and I appreciate your patience. Always. Listeners. Oh. (laughs) And Anna. Mm. But uh, yeah, because I just like don't know much at all about this um, part of history, part of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of those things that I, yeah. So I'm I'm glad that you picked this movie. I'm glad we talked about it because it's something that I'm sure lots of people watched the movie and didn't know anything about the archaeology um and i'm somebody who looked at it at the british museum and went hmm. Hmm. and had nothing had nothing it had i had nothing on well that let's go back and, and look at it again okay and go oh, oh. Yeah. and um and maybe it'll be another room for me to weep in at the british museum sure collect them all uh so thank you everyone for listening we hope that you are excited for this new summer blockbuster series uh we've got some some really interesting picks coming up um, yeah I'm, I'm excited to learn about both of those movies that i that amber has chosen that i have not seen we will be back in your ears next week with one of those special features and until then, you can find all of our back episodes at thedirtpod.com. You can also, if you're if you're there, you can also find all of our social media feeds. You can find merch. You can find uh, resources for educators and much, much more. You can also check out thedirtpod.com slash pass the mic for our uh, information all about our small grants program our- for... Yeah, our inaugural grants program. Yeah, for uh, conference travel for undergrads and graduate students. So check that out. You can also find us on Facebook. We are The Dirt Podcast there. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And (laughs) this is episode, this is phase one of a marathon recording session. I'm already losing my voice. No. Here we go. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. We love you. And thank you, you, Anna. You're welcome. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.